Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. So I had a heart-shaped pancake and also a star-shaped pancake today for breakfast. So it was a really special day for me. Wow. This is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. On the breakdown today, no big surprises in Monday's Iowa caucuses. We want to thank the great people of Iowa. Thank you. We love you all. What a turnout, what a crowd. Donald Trump took more than half the votes, leaving Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley to fight over crumbs from the table. The Florida governor finished second, despite going all out there, while Haley finished just behind him, unable to leverage her apparent momentum in recent weeks. All three of them now leave cold and snowy Iowa and head to cold and snowy New Hampshire for next Tuesday's contest, where polls show Haley seems to be within striking distance of Trump. Not making the trip to New England, Vivek Ramaswamy and Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. Now raise your hand if you even knew they were running or who they are. Both of them folded their tents after finishing way back in the pack Monday. Here's Ramaswamy, who did drop out after finishing fourth in Iowa. As I've said since the beginning, there are two America First candidates in this race. And earlier tonight, I called Donald Trump to tell him that I congratulated him on his victory and... Now, going forward, he will have my full endorsement for the presidency. And I think we're going to do the right thing for this country. I'm sure Donald J. Trump is very excited to have that endorsement. Now, just like Iowa, the Democrats will not be participating in New Hampshire. They chose to make South Carolina the first official Democratic primary, a spot traditionally held by the Granite State. And let me tell you, New Hampshireites are not amused by that. Joining us to talk about the presidential race and much more is Bracton Booker. He covers politics for Politico. He also writes The Recast. That is Politico's newsletter that unpacks the influence of race and identity on our politics. Hey, Bracton. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. Well, unpack it for us. Uh, no big surprises, but what are your, you know, what are your big takeaways from the caucuses? Well, look, I, I think the the biggest way, big, biggest takeaway, honestly, is is the margin of victory. Uh, you know, pollsters have gotten a bad rap in the last couple of uh, election cycles, uh, and I would say that pollsters pretty much got this one right coming out of Iowa. They showed Trump for basically as long as this has been a primary contest, having this these what we think of in the business as insurmountable leads uh, over his rivals. And that turned out to be true. He took more than 50%, won 98 of 99 counties in Iowa, and, and basically undercut any of his rivals' real, real chance of having a story coming out of Iowa. You know, the the big story for, for Iowa is usually, like, you, you have three so-called winners, right? You have the top winner, and then you have – two other candidates who can make a viable 
argument that they are the alternative to the front runner. And with Nikki Haley and and Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida uh, f- finishing two and three, but thirty points behind Trump, like there's no real argument uh, for for either of those candidates. Candidates, but you know, of course, they're going to continue uh, until they either run out of money or realize that perhaps this race might be over before it even really started. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with everything you said. I think there are some caveats in terms of like what we take out of this, like what it means about Trump more broadly in, say, a general election or even in this primary. I mean, Iowa is a singular place in some ways, a very white, uh, very conservative. um, And we did see a much lower turnout than in years past. Who knows if that was because of the snowstorms, the inevitability. Yeah, the it was on MLK Day, which is sort of an interesting day to hold the caucuses. But I do think that, yeah, for both Haley and DeSantis, like, they did not get that bump they wanted, which didn't even need to necessarily be, like, catching up to Trump. But I think if one of them had shown a little stronger, a little less than, like, a 30-point spread, then maybe there could have been a little – that ticket out of Iowa, as they talk about. Yeah, right, right. Well, it seems it seems like, you know, the big winner, not only in terms of the margin, but the fact that there are three tickets out of Iowa, Brockton, you know, if it had been just Haley and Trump, which is what some thought might happen, certainly what Haley was hoping would happen, mm-hmm. uh, that might have made, you know, New Hampshire and maybe South Carolina a little more interesting, huh? Well, look, I mean, I, Iowa's done now. We can, we can stop pretending like that is the, the pinnacle of the political universe. <laughs> like we care? No, Yeah, I mean, look, look, I mean... Also, Iowa is not uh, uh, is not in play when it comes to the general election. So the fact that we spend so much time talking about Iowa is is a lot about the pageantry of our politics, right? We we do it because it's, it's tradition, but in reality, it is not uh, a, a real factor in in the general election, right? It's going to be a Republican state. So now we go to New Hampshire, which also is probably not going to be really up for grabs, and they don't have a a, a bunch of um a bunch of uh, electoral votes, but. What you do see is a different type of Republican electorate, right? This this electorate is going to be a little bit more favorable to Nikki Haley, which is why you see her, you know, as you said, within striking distance. But with, this is the Republican primary, and Trump is still obviously the dominant force. We're going to see how close Haley can get. Uh, you saw Ron DeSantis, like, leave Iowa and go straight to South Carolina because he really has no shot in New Hampshire. Uh, he really didn't have a shot in, in South Carolina either. But, you know, <laughs> hey, you keep you keep campaigning. Might as well until, come to California. You know, about, about, what, at the very least, he should go to Nevada. At the very <laughs> least, he should go to Nevada, right? Like, he put he he put some effort in into Nevada early on. He pulled up everything in Nevada and put all eggs in the basket in, in uh, Iowa. That did not pan out. So maybe you will unpack that same yeah. you know, basket and try to make a play in, in Nevada, maybe. Um, but, you know, I think what folks are going to be looking for, certainly me, is like, how close can New Hampshire get? Does this, Is there an actual bump for when Haley comes down to South Carolina next month? She's the Can she win her own home state? I mean, I think that's a very open question, right? I mean, it is interesting, though, because to your point, like, I was so small, it does not represent the country. And yet, I mean, we had one report from NPR that a dollar out of every 250 spent on TV ads so far in the GOP contest went to 
spots in Iowa, right? And so there is this sense that, like, that momentum can be your golden ticket. Um, <clears throat> it's so fascinating, though, because, like, I mean, I mean, Scott, should we explain a little bit, like, how the caucuses even work? I mean, this is... Would you explain it to me? Yeah, I mean, it's different. <laughs> I think we think of a lot of times how the Democrats do it, which is literally people in a room kind of, like, going to their candidate's corner and lumping up. The Republicans do it um, through, basically, a ballot, a secret ballot, but it is still in these party gatherings where they, you know, deal with other party business. And it takes a lot of time and energy. And so even with the sort of disconnect between what the electorate looks like compared to the broader electorate, there's also just this question of like, who has the time and energy and desire to go there? And I do think that that's an open question, again, to Trump's sort of base support. Can we read anything into the lower numbers in terms of turnout? Yeah. Well, and Bracton, I think you would you agree that the process, one of the reasons the Democrats pulled out of Iowa is, well, they screwed it up badly in terms of the counting. In that's number 20, one. Number one. And, two, and number and two is it's not representative. And, and that's why they're also skipping New Hampshire, right? I mean, is that going to help Biden or hurt Biden in any way, do you think? Well, look, I mean, I, I think folks who are looking at the the updated process to select the incumbent president is probably going to go back to what we traditionally think of as as Iowa or New Hampshire going first or like some some type of the early states in 2028 going back to what we normally see the reason why Biden wanted to flip this a little bit is obviously uh 4 years ago South Carolina was very pivotal in in helping him secure the nomination and really kind of kickstarting kickstarting or bringing off life support however you want to look at it uh his candidacy of four years ago. So symbolically, because the uh, DNC head is from South Carolina, uh, he's got a lot of roots there. And it's, um, you know, uh, it is a very diverse state, which we'll get into this a little bit later. But like, that is why Biden was there last week trying to make inroads with black voters, right? So South Carolina is important, but again, only because of of the symbolic nature of what it is for um for, for Biden. But like, yeah, I think you also have to just look at the fact that like Trump just sucks up the oxygen no matter where he goes and what he does. And so like he may, you know, not do as well in New Hampshire. Say Haley could take that. But it almost doesn't matter. I mean, this is a man who's going to a defamation trial where he's already been found to have sexually assaulted a woman 20 whatever years ago. And he's actually using that as a campaign event because instead of following Haley and DeSantis and even Biden around, all the cameras went with him to this courtroom. And it's just wild. Well, it's wild. And also the other candidates in the race have said they would still, if they're not uh, nominated, they would endorse uh, Trump, even if he's convicted of you and know, so one, did the caucus goers. Yeah, and the caucus goers did as well. And one other thing I should just mention before we go to a break um, is that, uh, you know, in Iowa, the governor, who's quite popular, uh, Kim Reynolds, endorsed DeSantis. That did not seem to help him very much. He, you know, did finish in second, but just barely and so far behind Trump. Now they go to New Hampshire, where the governor there, who's also pretty popular, uh, Sununu, has endorsed Haley and also got Chris Christie to drop out. Uh, so we'll see if it makes any difference for uh, for them there. All right. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk with Bracton Booker, well, maybe some more about Iowa and New Hampshire, but also what Vice President Kamala Harris can do to help President Biden's reelection campaign, and how third-party candidate Cornell West could affect the Biden-Harris ticket's outreach to black voters. You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. We'll be right back.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. We're talking with Politico's Bracton Booker. He covers politics and also writes The Recast, which is Politico's newsletter that unpacks how race and identity shape politics, policy, and influence in the USA today. Um, so we were talking about Iowa. We're talking about New Hampshire. Um, just I'm, I'm wondering uh, if we could just maybe just get one more thing in there about New Hampshire, and that is, you know, that's a state, Bracton, that is known for sort of defying conventional wisdom, resuscitating campaigns, kind of like they did with Hillary Clinton against Barack Obama. Lots of independence there, Lots right? Lots of independence. So like, what, what is your, you said a moment ago, like, hey, the electorate's very different there, but like, how do you see it as being different? Well, look, I, I think uh, this this electorate is, is going to be much more receptive to a message of Nikki Haley or someone saying, hey, let's turn the page from you know, what she talks about is like the chaos that that Donald Trump brings uh, to the national and international stage. Now, obviously, the base of the party still loves that kind of chaos, feels like, hey, he's going in there, he's breaking systems, he's he's breaking norms. And that's what we want. We want a disruptor in our in our leader. And Nikki Haley is someone who is projecting herself or selling herself as someone who's going to bring back some stability. Right. But I think what you saw certainly late December uh when the questions of of slavery like whether whether or not slavery was the root cause of the civil war and she had trouble answering sort of some basic questions that gives a lot of people pause and whether or not does it even make sense to to try to elevate nikki haley as as an alternative when it's so very clear that the republican base wants trump and they're really the singular focus is getting a republican back in the white house yeah, I mean, just some of these exit polls from Iowa, and again, understanding their electorate, but just looking, nearly two-thirds of caucus goers on the GOP side said the 2020 election was stolen and that he's fit for office even if he's convicted. Um, so it does seem like we're almost having two different conversations here, you know? And, and, and I just don't know that there's any way to bridge them until we get to the general and you are talking about that small portion of swing voters in a handful of states. You know, Bracken, I, I have to think, maybe it's naive, but I have to think that there's a fair number of uh, Republican office holders, Mitch McConnell, for example, who would love to see Trump knocked off. And I, I wonder, 
do you think that if, you know, let's say, you know, Haley shocks the world and comes in first in New Hampshire and goes into South Carolina, her home state, you know, with the wind at her sails, do you think, like, might we see some Republicans who say, look, it's now or never uh, We want if we want to knock him off, or are they just going to stay on the sidelines? Look, I, I think this, this conversation that's happening within the Republican Party is about, okay, who is actually running the party and who does the base want? Two different conversations, because <laughs> I think that uh, folks who are who are the, the elites who run the party would like nothing better than to turn the page and say, look, this is not sustainable. Even if Trump wins and, and 24 and we have four more years of the Trump presidency, where does the Republican Party go from here? Right. The, the Trump era introduced us to Vivek Ramaswamy and made him, at least for a, for a period, a, a viable candidate, a viable presidential choice when he has no experience. He just bursts on the scene and would say outlandish things that really couldn't, he couldn't back up. Hey, it worked for Trump four years ago. It did or work for I Trump. say eight years ago. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think what a lot of people miss about Trump, I, and look, I, a lot of folks don't want to give him credit for being uh, an expert communicator. Def- despite how, what you think about him and his policies, he is a master manipulator of the media. He's an excellent, excellent communicator. And what he does is he commands the spotlight. If you're going to start getting bored with his, his uh, stump speech. He'll say something outlandish. He gets your attention. You know, he he did use Twitter uh, back uh, during his presidency to, like, keep you engaged constantly. And that is his real talent. Now, whether or not the Republican Party wants to continue that, because, yeah, you could you may win back to presidency, but where do you go from there is is really the question for, for the Republican Party. And I, I think a lot of people are hemming and hawing about what their future looks like. I mean, this all comes, of course, as we're seeing flagging support for the current president. Like, you can't talk about the enthusiasm for Trump without talking about the flip side, which is the lack of enthusiasm for Biden, particularly among voters that he really needs. We're talking young people, voters of color. I mean, some of the numbers around what, you know, even in a deep blue state like California, what polling is showing in terms of, you know, in 2020, Biden won by 30 points. A poll out yesterday shows that he is only 19 points and a head to head above Trump and 16 points when you bring in some of these third party candidates like Robert Kennedy and Cornell West and Jill Stein. And so, you know, he's not doing well with Latinos. I mean, it, it, it does beg the question, like, what is this Harris Biden Harris campaign, excuse me, going to do? And I mean, I know you've reported on this a lot, Braxton, like what do you see Harris as a potential help in any of that? Or could she hurt this campaign? Well, it, it it really depends on who you ask, and that, that we're asking God you, Braxton. <laughs> yes, you're asking you're asking me. Look, I absolutely think she could be be an asset, but she has to be deployed in in the right way. Like she she is a as a great uh, surrogate for the Biden Harris uh, campaign uh, when she's talking about women's rights, when she's talking about the access to abortion, when she's talking about uh, different things like uh, about how Republicans are taking away rights now. Because the Biden administration and Democrats, when they had control of all three chambers, couldn't get voting rights uh, across the finish line, an update to, to, to voting rights uh, in our country, that that leaves a lot of Americans, particularly black Americans, saying like, look, you guys had the opportunity to do this. Why didn't you get this done? I mean, the answer is obviously complicated, and nobody wants to hear a complicated answer when you're trying to pitch voters on why you need four more years. But he couldn't convince members of his own party to kind of 
fall in line, which is what Republicans absolutely do when they have power. They fall in line. They say, hey, this is bigger than us. We're trying to get agendas passed. Fall in line and go do it. But Democrats could not get Joe Manchin, could not get Kristen Sinema of Arizona before she switched to an independent to like stay on message. And that is an indictment of, of Biden. And certainly when you're talking about uh, Vice President Harris, like Republicans make her a boogeyman or yeah. a boogeywoman. I mean, which has been her whole career. I mean, this is true. Yeah, this is true. I mean, it's well worn. I'm curious, Scott, like you and I have both watched her since she was district attorney here. I I will say I think she is a really sort of befuddling politician to cover because she does have such strength and such weakness. I mean, she's always had challenges kind of rallying a base and defining herself. She does. And, you know, I don't know how much you've uh, actually covered her on the on the campaign trail, Bracton. But, you know, in the years that we've covered her locally and even as AG and senator, she's very warm. You know, she, if you're in a room Me with too, her, yeah. she lights it up and she's funny and easygoing and she makes people, I think, feel comfortable. And none of that really translates, you know, on a big stage if she's reading a teleprompter. And so what are your right. thoughts about like what is the given that like what yeah, is the best is way? Good, yeah. yeah what, what is the best way to deploy her, as you say? I, I think I think she has to be in front of crowds. And like you said, not reading a speech. Like she has to be able to touch people. She has to be able to go into a room and engage. Kiss those babies. Folks. <laughs> kiss, either kiss those babies or have a sit-down interview that uh, where she does not read off of talking points. Like, too often times when she's in an interview, especially like a high-stakes television cable interview or something like that, she sounds very scripted. And the best Kamala Harris is when she's unscripted, when she's going off and, like, dropping this, oh, I am vice president, therefore you shall respect me. And she goes in on somebody, like, look, I'm a prosecutor. Let me tell you exactly why we need to do X, Y, and Z. But That's much, the best comment. But how much of that reaction to her do you think is because she's a woman and because she's a person of color? Oh, I mean, I think that that's a big part of it. But I mean, there's nothing that she can do to change that, right? Mm-hmm. Like she's got to lean into what she is. And therefore, like the the the, the country is browning. The country in theory is, is becoming a little more uh, uh, accepting of, of democratic principles if Democrats go out and sell their message. So she should be a main, um, a main surrogate, a main art, uh, 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 certainly someone who can go articulate uh, the future of what the Democratic Party looks like. But I think there is worry that maybe she'll overshadow or outshine um, President Biden. Um, when it, you know, people aren't voting for vice president, people are voting for the people at the top of the ticket. So, well, the, you know, we could, the Republicans are going to try to make this about her, though, right? Because, I mean, sure, because of his sure. age, I also think it's like this interesting needle that they're going to have to thread. And this is where third party candidates like Cornell West sort of come in around these questions. Like they need to motivate younger voters, voters of color. Those are also the same voters that are really pissed at Biden about what's happening in Israel and Gaza, who are sort of less likely to be engaged and understand the policy achievements that this administration has made that might be helpful to them or that, you know, Republicans have have stifled. Um, And I just feel like, you know, look at beyond, you know, foreign policy, like look at the immigration question. I think the Biden administration is willing to engage on a potential deal with Republicans because they think that could help them with some swing voters. But then does it leave the base at home? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. What are your thoughts about Cornell West? He is a public intellectual, very far to the left, uh, Harvard, you know, uh, professor. Uh, He's running. First, he was going to run on the People's Party ticket, then the Green Party ticket. Now he's running as an independent. Who does he appeal to? He seems to me, Bracton, that he would appeal more to like 
young, white uh, college students. Yeah, look, I, it, when, when he came into the political offices uh, in December, uh, he, he did not like the questions uh, that myself and other colleagues asked whether or not he was a protest candidate. Is mm-hmm. he someone that, you know, voters are going to look to if they're essentially going to throw away their vote or they're saying, hey, we don't care about either one of what the major political parties are selling, so we're going to vote for him. And he's like, no, he's going to go out and he sh- he's going to go out and earn every vote, which may be <laughs> true. But like the problem is a ballot access. He's probably not going to make it on all 50 states ballots. But who he appeals to is like people who just really love being in the presence of Cornell West. Like, I don't know if he brings anything that that says, you know what, that's the guy we need leading leading our country when we're talking about the Israel-Hamas conflict, when we're talking about what's going on. Uh, and, that's and a Russia scary thought. For I mean, so, like, what, what does he bring to the table? He's a very brilliant man. He has a very, very messy personal life, if you want to go read into some of this stuff. Very fascinating person, uh, but it's 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 not someone who you say like you know what let's turn over the keys to <laughs> to this guy. Let's give him he's... give him the nuclear code, so to speak. Oh man, yes, I mean, exactly. Well, what about the other third party, <laughs> Robert F. Kennedy? I mean, he has basically Junior. built an entire campaign on this question of vaccines and just I mean, very sort of fringe. I think, extremist views. And yet you look at some of these polls and perhaps in part just because of his name, there are people who are open to this candidacy. And so I do think I mean, I know with Kennedy, there's sort of some debate between the Trump and Biden sides of like who would be hurt more. But I think either way, given the sort of structure of our electoral college and the way that presidential campaigns are decided, it's fair to say that they should both be nervous. Yeah, because it doesn't take much right in some states. Yeah. Well, yeah, look, I mean, uh, look, Robert F. Kennedy uh, had a colleague, Brittany Gibson, that went down to Georgia uh, this past weekend to cover uh, uh, an RFK rally and, and a couple of events. And you think about Georgia four years ago, Georgia was won by by Biden by uh, by less than 11,000 votes. Now, if you don't think Kennedy can get Kennedy mm-hmm. or Cornell West can get 10,000 votes between them. That means Georgia is really up for grabs or maybe it swings back to the to the Republicans. Right. And what we're also not talking about is like because there is a menu of candidates that that folks have to choose from. There are some people that are just going to be tuning out of politics and saying, you know what, I'd rather sit on my couch because I don't think any of these people really have the best of the country's best interests at heart. And so, you know, my life didn't drastically change between Trump and Biden. So maybe I'll just sit this one out and see what happens in 2020. Yeah. And of course, that, that we know who that helps. Good. That helps the guy with the most motivated voters, which would be Donald J. Exactly. Trump. So we're going to have to wait and see. All right. Bracton Booker from Politico. Check out his newsletter. It's called The Recast. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, this was a blast. Thanks yeah, for having we'll do it again. And thanks, of course, to my co-host, Marisa Lagos. Good thanks to see you. Thanks for having you. me. All right. Finally, one last thing that caught our attention. It's a kind of an unusual state assembly race on the North Coast. The incumbent up there, Democrat Jim Wood, isn't running for re-election, but six other Democrats and one Republican have jumped into the race. One of those Democrats, Rusty Hicks. He is also chair of the California Democratic Party. Now, he's never run for public office, but he moved up to the district and launched his campaign And that strikes some other Democrats as a problem. Like, how can he run the state party in a critical election year, no less, and run for office? Well, despite calls for Hicks to step down as party chair, he says he's staying put. 
as party chair. You know, he's got a lot of friends in high places, and some of them have endorsed him, including U.S. Senator LaFonza Butler, Attorney General Rob Bonta, Farm Labor Leader Dolores Huerta, and you know there's going to be a lot of other names to follow them. All right, that is a wrap for Tuesday, January 16th. Political Breakdown is a production of KQED. Our engineer is Seal Muller, and our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.